economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Today, uh, we're going to, I guess, kind of do a critical analysis of something called the Great Barrington Declaration. Not sure if you've heard about it. Peter and I were at a conference a couple weeks ago and heard from basically one of the founders that helped draft it, and it was some pretty interesting stuff. So we're going to start off with a reading of it. Justin, were you our, our reader today? Sure, I'd be happy. <clears throat> it's not terribly long, so we thought it was appropriate to just read it off for the audience here and yeah, and before we read it, we should say that, you know, it has a bunch of signers who are medical doctors, and the, the lead authors are Dr. Martin Kuldorf, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard University. He's a biostatistician and an epidemiologist and an expert in detecting and monitoring infectious disease outbreaks and vaccine safety. And Dr. Sanera Gupta, who's an Oxford epidemiologist with expertise in immunology, vaccine development, and mathematical modeling of infectious diseases and uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a Stanford professor, who is also an epidemiologist and a public health expert focusing on infectious diseases. Right, so not your average Joes that practice medicine, no offense to other schools, but these are pretty up there schools, very good pedigrees. Yes, and I only mention that because when this declaration is mentioned in and by the corporate press, you often find it mentioned as, you know, this anti-lockdown declaration. And then you also hear that it's opposed by some medical experts. And of course, medical experts disagree, right? But we need to make clear when we bring this up that this is actually authored by some very, very heavy hitters in the field. Yeah. All right. So it starts off. The Great Barrington Declaration. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Coming from both the left and the right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come, with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls 
we know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity, i.e. the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection while protecting those who are at higher risk. We call this focused protection. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households, can be implemented and is well within the scope and capability of public health professionals. Those who are not sick, or those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying at home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should reopen for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Art, music, sports, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. And then as I add, signed uh, October 4th of 2020. So this is fairly recent, hot off the press. At that conference, we heard of other work from another medical doctor that had not that had been like pulled off of Google. And so there's there's other professionals out there that have had opinions about COVID and the handling of it that have frankly been kind of suppressed by the media. And so that was another interesting part on the panel that we had. Yeah, and to date, also from you can find this at the gbdeclaration.org. This is where this is, and there you can <clears throat> sign it. Uh, but to date, there's over half a million people have signed it. So 557,000 concerned citizens, 10,000 or actually closer to 11,000 medical and public health scientists, and then over 30,000 medical practitioners have signed this to date. Now, I don't know exactly how they've at the signature, so there could be a little bit off there. But, you know, this obviously isn't one guy with his Google account signing it almost 600,000 <laughs> times, uh, we could probably say. So, um, yeah, the, I, I think the... The declaration makes some interesting points, uh, especially in terms of the costs of the lockdowns. And one of the, the interesting things is they put health costs in the forefront. So, you know, there's increased rates of depression and you have children who aren't getting their vaccines. You know, I've, in, I've just recently encountered this where we had to make uh, different arrangements in order to take my daughter to the hospital for what is probably a minor look at her heart. But, you know, if we hadn't made it, it could be something that ended up being major. So the, these medical costs go seen and unseen. But there's also costs beyond that that are seen and unseen. And so one thing that I continually think of when I think of the lockdowns is like, let's just take the $2 trillion number, which was the size of the bailout, not even include the foregone GDP, 
But that two trillion dollar <laughs> number, if you consider all that money, what's the opportunity cost in economics? We always talk about that. It's like the alternative use of that money. Well, one thing that you could have done is you could have given this money to charities which save lives. And so the Malaria Foundation, I think it is, is claims to be the world's best charity in terms of saving people's lives. Of course, you know, this is a claim that they're making about their own organization. But they say for about $3,400, they can save a life using, you know, getting someone who has malaria, malaria medicine. And so, like, let's say they're off by a factor of 10 and round up. And so let's say it costs $40,000 to save a life. With that $40,000 across $2 trillion, you could save 50 million lives. Now, obviously, the cost will rise to save more people, but then you could substitute to more methods. Hopefully, the cost rising is included in the fact that I literally multiplied their estimated cost by 10. And so we've had 1 million coronavirus deaths, 50 million that you could save the other way. And so I think this declaration does a good job. And, and there's even more to say about the opportunity costs of things like the coronavirus bailout, not including GDP. Well, and I think what I mentioned on our podcast back when the checks were being dished out to everybody was you know, we can make people really comfortable for that amount of money. Now, I didn't do the math like you did, but everybody who's confined to a room, they could have had a 50-inch flat screen with all the streaming services, uh, maybe even a gaming council, <laughs> whatever. My point is, that was such a ridiculous amount of money that went out to yeah. people who weren't really at risk or vulnerable populations that we could have made the vulnerable population very comfortable as they dealt with being shut in their homes or otherwise. Yeah. Of course, I would never, you know, opt into this for all of society. But I told my wife on it, you know, when we got the check, and I was at home a lot more, that really, in terms of like our quality of life, just very narrowly, apart from not being able to go off, we're actually financially better off from the whole situation, really, mm -hmm. I continue to work and get paid from home. A lot of my job I couldn't do. I was just doing less hours of work, getting the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's very weird that I got a check in the mail for like doing less work and being at home and for having no more expenses. In fact, probably less expenses because I'm not going out and getting gas and all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a very weird approach that didn't quite target <clears throat> people's needs, I don't think. Well, and I think the comments in the declaration about the underprivileged being harmed was another area that we had brought up. And I think that's since since we did that episode has unfolded in mass ways that there, but the, the spin is more of it's revealed the inequalities that we have that the underprivileged, um, you know, aren't able to do schooling from home, but yet the claim here and the, and the data that they provide and point to is that they should be in school. You've got a population that has close to a 0% chance of, of getting the disease. And if we're being more focused with the vulnerable populations, we would have less concern about passing the disease to the older population. One other statistics that came out from the conference was, and this was from uh, Dr. J. Bhattacharya, that it was two in 1,000 was the chance, which confirms about what I found out when I was COVID positive three, four weeks ago, that I had a 99.97% chance of, of living as a 49-year-old. And so two in 1,000 chance, do we really want to give up our lifestyle and all the things that come along with it for the two in 1,000? Well, we also need to stop right there because when you say two in 1,000, the chances vary a thousandfold for different ages, yeah, right? So, right. and that is one of the things that Dr. Kuldor's research highlights is, you know, it may be two in 1,000 if we average that for everybody, right. but I think we ought to take a minute to go through what the argument that Kuldorf 
Kuldor's research actually makes is because it depends on this vast difference in risk profile based on, you know, age and just whether or not someone is, you know, infirm. Right. Because not only is the argument that something like, you know, the least fortunate will will pay a really high price under current lockdown policies. Kuldorf's argument is actually that more elderly people will actually die under current lockdown policies, that it will actually harm people who are even at risk for COVID more. And I think that's definitely a stronger argument. Yeah. So it might take, it might be useful to explain that really yeah, carefully. So okay. So this argument is based on this idea of herd immunity, right? Now you often hear herd immunity described as oh, that's, that's a strategy that people want to pursue. Herd immunity is not a strategy. It is just a state that a population reaches at a given time. You can reach it any number of ways, right? You can, re- you can reach it naturally where, you know, an illness just spreads to the population. Is it approximately like 60 or 70% comes to mind? I think it's different for different diseases. For different diseases. And, okay. uh, I remember that from the conference maybe, but and we actually, for the argument to work, we don't even have to know what that number is. We can call that number N, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where okay. it's a percentage of a population. Yeah. So you can get that naturally, or you can get it through a vaccine, right? That's another way you can achieve herd, herd immunity, where enough, uh, enough percentage of a population has the antibodies such that the disease doesn't spread through them. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons people get mad at people who don't vaccinate their kids is because they say that they're being kind of a free rider, right? Yeah. And, you know, if everybody did that, then we wouldn't have herd immunity to these diseases and they would spread more rapidly. So the argument goes that, look, it's going to take some length of time for us to reach herd immunity. That length of time can be shortened if we reach a vaccine really quickly, right? Yeah. But if we want to reach herd immunity, that necessarily means that a percentage of the population, call it N, has to get get sick, get infected with the disease and develop antibodies to it. There's a couple ways we could do this. We could lock everybody down. And essentially, uh, when we do that, when we try to lock everybody down, we equalize the risk of getting the disease to everybody. A, a lockdown that is enforced to everybody necessarily is going to the extent that it's possible decrease everybody's chance of getting the disease sure. right on the other hand what we might want to do since there is a thousandfold difference in death rate right. between the elderly and the young and we know that the young have almost zero chance of dying from this disease what we might want to do is increase the the rate at which the people who are who face are relatively, relatively zero chance of dying we might want them to get infected so that we can make sure that the percentage of the, of the population n we want the people who comprise that n number to be people who are very low risk now if we equalize that risk for everybody the time it's going to take to reach herd immunity is going to be longer And so a lot of those people who are at risk are going to thereby become infected uh, when they otherwise wouldn't be if we had a targeted strategy whereby we made sure that people who are low at risk were at higher percentage risk of getting infected since we know they have a much lower chance of dying. 
So listeners, I have to tell you that Justin looked extra credit worthy because as he's speaking, he's got a medical looking mask tied around his neck and he looks like doctor, like a medical doctor. So that was pretty awesome, but you didn't get to see that. So this looks like a good time for our, our break. And I think when we come back, maybe us two economists here will have a couple comments to make on we're kind of always more efficient from an economist standpoint to be targeted at the margin and being more pointed or focused with a number of different areas, like maybe even traffic, for instance, on the road. So we'll pick up there in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contribution to students' experience, society's understanding for private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlaps of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordy Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Here at the Institute, we got fun student events going on this term. We're doing a little road trip to Olathe, Kansas, and we've got education states. Some states spend less money and have better education outcomes. Why is that the case? We have a reading group, Bitcoin, and have the economics of environmentalism coming up. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, we're back. So we're going to kick off with a little economic analysis of some of this stuff. Peter, you had something you found on some differing opinions. Imagine that among economists. So there are differing opinions out there. Yeah, so I... Uh... Was, I'm a frequent follower of Tyler Cowen and kind of his work, and he, he has a lot of interesting things to say. I think that's one thing you can always say about Tyler's takes is that they're never boring to read. And so Tyler, for his part, seems to, most for the most part, oppose this Great Barrington Declaration. In fact, he has a, an article on his website, Marginal Revolution, which is you know titled very poignantly, Why I Reject the Great Barrington Declaration. It's just very straightforward. And so he also has column in Bloomberg, which says basically the same thing. It's a little bit longer where he goes after the Great Barrington Declaration. And so, you know, it's especially the Bloomberg is a little bit long, so we can't go into everything. But Tyler seems to be worried about the herd immunity approach things and, and solving it via herd immunity. And so he's, de- I think he's skeptical of if it's even possible to have herd immunity on like a very large scale for this disease, or if it's something that we can get before having a vaccine to be more specific. And so can we approach herd immunity with no vaccine? And so I've always taken this to be sort of the the wrong approach even to looking at this. The way that I look at this is like this. If we have a situation where we have, you know, groups that we need to protect who are at a higher risk of dying, as Justin was talking about the last hour, if they're, you know, often being protected and we're providing for them in one way or another, whether it's through government or private charities or whatever it is, and the rest of people are just going about their daily lives, a typical infection from coronavirus on one of these people who's not a group that's more at risk is like a positive externality. It really is. And a positive externality, listeners, if you're not familiar, is something that by doing it, you confer a benefit to others, which you don't capture yourself on the margin. Yeah, a benefit to others that are, aren't involved in the transaction. Here, the transaction, if you will, is uh, somebody getting sick with COVID and having to deal with the cost of, of doing so. Yeah. And so, so uh, 
I'm not, I'm not a natural scientist. And so I won't go into herd immunity. And I know there's some skepticism about, you know, getting this disease multiple times. And so I've actually seen, you know, Hong Kong has declared officially that their scientists have found a case where that happens. And so there's a question, you know, if we can get it multiple times, is this a fix? By the way, this also shed some uh, issue with our typical routes of curing viruses as well, if, if immunity is only temporary. But the way that I look at it is you, you don't have to have a full herd immunity in order to confer a benefit on, on people. Every time one person becomes immune, that lowers the chance that in the future, they'll come into contact with someone and give them a disease. And so the Great Barrington Declaration, as far as I'm concerned, works without having a full herd immunity or 60% or any percentage, because every person who gets this virus, assuming it confers immunity to that person, lowers the chance of them infecting others. And so all these uh, arguments about the science of herd immunity, I think that that's less important than the idea that we simply just need to get a lot of people who have immunity to it. And one or two or 10, you know, if one person not wearing their mask makes a difference, then one person having immunity to the virus makes a difference. And so I think we just need to be consistent with our application of our policies. Now, I can't imagine Tyler comes out and says, I haven't read what you've been looking at, so I want your opinion on this, that Tyler would come out and say, yes, we should have schools shut down in some way, shape or form or hybrids. I can't imagine he's agreeing necessarily with that. Is it all focused on this herd immunity idea or is it... Are there other areas? Tyler, as far as I can tell, is generally favorable towards lockdowns in, in, at, at a very large scale. Like Tyler's strategy is what Justin mentioned at the beginning, which is lockdown for a long time until we get a vaccine or something like that. And then we can solve this problem. So ignoring other people not getting treatment, not going in for different things. He's OK with that. I mean, I, I'm sure that he, I'm sure that he would like things to be more properly, like you know, worked out, so that way we don't have the weird frictions of like the hospitals not like people being too afraid to get their heart attack checked out or something like that. I'm sure that he wants not that's not happen, but I think that he thinks that the benefit of locking down until we have a vaccine ex- exceeds the cost. And it surprised me a bit. I did hear Tyler read or heard him state early on in the process that we could have addressed this with like having mandates of masks and temperature checks at businesses or something like that. So it, it was a more of a government involvement, but short of locking down that maybe that type of response by law, temperature checks before you go into Walmart or whatever could have been another method. Um, and I can't remember exactly where I heard that on, but interesting. Well, I, I wanted to just kind of build on that a bit with the general approach uh, economists look at, and that's why I think my knee-jerk reaction to this set of circumstances was similar, is that it's it's always more efficient to be as direct as possible in terms of interventions with the people that are impacted by it. So just to give you an example, listeners, toll roads, which I think as Americans, we always scoff at the idea of having to pay to use a road because that's like one of our rights in the Bill of Rights or something that that we get free roads, but in reality, the the tolls go towards the improvements of that particular road that you used. And so the idea of toll roads and other ways of having people who are directly using it directly pay for it is always a more efficient approach. And so that's what struck me right away when we're all dishing out money that, well, let's hit the vulnerable populations, because in general rule of thumb, that that's always the case. Yeah. And let me go back to just to, to your point, because I found a good paragraph, I think, in this Bloomberg article, which gets Tyler's opinion, I think, somewhat decently, which is that whenever you think of stricter policies last spring, they're now behind us. And the emphasis on, emphasis on lockdowns is not helpful. The more useful question is whether the list of prohibited activities should be expanded or contracted. In Tyler's opinion, it, it appears to be, quote, it's in some cases, surely it should be expanded. 
indoor restaurants and drinking, for example, are probably not a good idea in most parts of the U.S. right now. Hmm. And so I, he's not calling for a full lockdown. He says that's beside the point. But Tyler's uh, comment is maybe on the margin. We should close more things than we are right now. It seems to be. Uh, he's he's a little bit uncommittal with exactly his his beliefs throughout the column, besides that he's opposed to the Great Barrington Declaration. Well, part of my testimony to the Kansas State Senate was the idea of federalism, which we haven't brought up this, but we've brought it up plenty of other podcasts that shut down decisions, I argued, should be at the most local level. In other words, it shouldn't even reside in the governor's office because Eastern Kansas is different than Western Kansas and let those local municipalities decide if if there is an outbreak or something that, hey, it would be best if we just shut down our little community, our county or whatever that level is for this week or two until maybe our healthcare system can can absorb uh, the folks that are are getting hurt. And so I, let alone holding at the federal level where we have, you know, national mask mandate or something, that seems like no plan, but I was arguing that shutdown decisions should reside at those very local levels. Whereas mask mandates, I said, I have a little less heartburn on that being at the governor's office, because if we do a cost benefit analysis, yes, it's kind of aggravating to have to put on the mask, but at the same time, it's a fairly low cost measure. And so if we're going to have some sort of policies flowing from the governor's office, state by state, they should be fairly low cost measures because the benefits might be questionable statewide. Can I reiterate something? Because I think that, but especially what like Tyler's argument really misses the key point about Kuldorf and the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, so, you know, Cohen says, well, maybe we should, you know, close, di- we should uh, not have indoor dining or, or whatever he's saying. He's highlighting activities that he thinks ought to be closed. And the entire point about the targeted approach is that what we ought to do is target our policies towards individuals and in particular risk categories rather than activities at which people with widely different risks participate. So risk is a thousandfold different for an 18-year-old and an 80-year-old. Yeah. And to the extent that we are going to end up at herd immunity anyway, we want the people who get sick in order to reach herd immunity to be those people who have the least amount of of risk. And in fact, if an 80-year-old gets COVID and dies, that doesn't help us on our march to herd immunity. If you're dead, you are no longer part of the herd. (laughs) So what we want are, you know, young people who face very little risk to get sick and therefore immune. And even if that immunity doesn't last for, for your lifetime, right? You are at least immune. Let's say it only lasts for sit for three months. Yeah, that's the that's the conservative low estimate right so now. So yeah. you made me think of something interesting here that I want to bounce off that I never thought of before. Is it possible that out of equity and fairness, the leaders really were like, we'd like to just lock down the old people and make them lock down, but that wouldn't be fair. And we don't trust this voluntary behavior stuff that they're actually going to choose to do the right thing that's going to help the public. So we're going to help everybody by locking down everybody. And that's more fair. I don't think our leaders are smart or fair. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's what they care about. Uh, That might be one way they could justify this decision. But 
look, if Kulderf is right, it actually makes those elderly people who are being locked down more likely to die. So I will say that I wanted to go back so we don't get too far from it. Yes. Cowan does have a response to, to the targeting, but I, personally, I think it's a weak response, maybe the weakest response in the whole column is that he sort of makes a retreat to flattening the curve, I think. And he says, in most parts of the West world, no normal openings for restaurants, sporting events, and workplaces are likely to lead to spiraling caseloads and overloaded hospitals. And so it seems to be that the argument is that we can't have this targeted approach because if we do, then the hospitals will overload. So we've retreated now back to the, the flattening the curve. But the main issue- But he doesn't give any evidence on capacity, yeah, healthcare that, capacity that's, At least in the column. So maybe yeah. he has some data that he has uh-huh. not shared to the rest of the world and his opinions, but he, and he mentions that like the harder hit parts of Europe are already at risk of overloading hospitals. Mm-hmm. He doesn't provide any evidence of that. And I, I haven't heard that. Maybe that's true. But you know, even at risk, that sounds like, to me, that reads like, the harder hit parts of Europe have not hit hospital capacity yet. Yeah. And look, were I presented with some empirical evidence right. that his claim that opening would lead to hospital overload, and then I would be very sympathetic to yeah, that claim. That's but, a very valid uh, claim. That's what we talked about in yeah, the previous flattening podcast. Flattening the curve, too. great. Yeah. But when the curve is flat, so uh, do we have any empirical experiments going on that would that would let us think that that this policy would either lead to hospital overload or not? Well, it turns out that we do, right? We can look at the different states that have opened and yeah. we can look at the different countries right. um, that have more or less restrictive policies. Yeah. And I think that that empirical evidence does not bear out the weight that Cohen means it to for his conclusion. Yeah, and, and I can, I've been eyeing this since I gave that testimony in the state of Kansas, so I can uh, speak on that our ICU bed availability had dropped from 43% to 37% just last week. And so what I argued was we, we ought to have public policy that says when ICU bed capacity gets to X percent, I don't know what X is, that might be up to medical experts and some other people. But to me, having that sort of capacity sounds pretty good, at least at the, at the take, that that's a good uh, number. However, then this last week, you hear anecdotal stories about one hospital that has reached capacity and that's what's on the news. But this takes a statewide approach. The fact that they're not accepting more ICU patients at one particular hospital doesn't mean that's the whole point of this is that you can't go down the road five miles to another hospital or 10 minutes, or maybe it's 30 minutes or whatever, and utilize, you know, ICU bed capacity in a region. Yeah. But that doesn't get brought up. Yeah. Well, and one of the reasons I think it doesn't get brought up is the flatten the curve perspective, which again, I, I like both of youth, I think has value, uh, but it comes from a different time when this virus was going on. Last spring is when you heard of flatten the curve. Yeah. And last spring is when they were talking about a death rate of three to 6% for the general population. And that just isn't the case. No. And so even if we have reopenings on the margin, so restaurants and all these things, and a lot of people get sick from coronavirus, Russ, I don't know about you. I'm not sure if you went to the hospital But I imagine if it's something that's as mild as the flu, which it is, again, for children, certainly for most of, you know, middle-aged population, it's not until you hit like upper 50s or other, you know, pre-existing conditions. Uh, I've even seen 70s. Yeah. yeah. I looked when President Trump died in 74, so I kind of looked there. So yeah, it it is really that 80 plus range where it gets to be 
more dangerous. Yeah, so we never worry about overbooking hospitals with the flu. And since this is the flu for most of the population, and if we keep the elderly away from most of the population, as is the targeted approach of the Great Barrington Declaration, I don't understand why we would have the, the problem of hospital capacity or flattening the curve. It seems to be, if you accept the, the latest data on what the, this disease does to most people, I don't see where the flattening the curve concern would come from. Yeah. And let me also just bring this up because this hit my newsfeed today. Four newborns in Australia, which is under a severe lockdown, right? Four newborns in Australia died after being denied life-saving heart surgery mm. because it wasn't available in the hospital at which they were at. And travel restrictions forbid the interstate travel, which would have allowed oh them to travel to a different hospital. Wow. See if that case goes on other news feeds of different places, but yeah, again, it's just a, it's an anecdotal one story of an awful thing, but this one pertains to the fact that they were locked down, which yeah. we really haven't heard any anecdotal stories of that being and, the case for the most part. And the scary thing is like I tried to bring up at the beginning, that's only the explicit cases that we can find again. Yeah. You know, if we just do the very simple back the envelope math on the against malaria foundation, you could say 50 million people barely over 1 million people. And it's still a lot of people dying from the coronavirus, but relative to saving 50 million people from the coronavirus spending that we've done, I mean, this is an insanely different number. And so it, it is, it's just sad to see, you know, these costs. Well, I, mean, I think the argument of the Great Barrington document is that we're not going to see the problems of the lockdown for another possibly five to 10 years. Uh, somebody who didn't go in and get that bump on their body checked out because of either a lockdown or uh, services were delayed or something. And so they didn't go get that checked out. And so they're behind on their cancer treatments or something. And that might have shortened their lives. Yeah, certainly there will be costs that we won't see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap things up unless there's any final comments. All right. Well, this has been a presentation of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. We thank you all for listening. If you feel like you enjoy the show and want others to find us, please give us a five-star rating on your apps and on uh, the internet. We appreciate it. Other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks. <laughs>